Thank you for joining us for the lessons from First Naz Podcast. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the story of, of Pentecost today. And as you're turning in your Bible to Acts chapter 2, I have a couple of, of my own announcements. I always have my own announcements. These are my announcements. So my first announcement is that on Thursday mornings at 6 a.m., we have uh, been gathering together via Zoom, and we have been praying together, and it's been a good time. And I hope that uh, more people would join us. And so you are welcome. You can find the link to that. There's a Facebook event. I'll create a Facebook event. And you can go on Facebook. And Facebook will remind you that you want to pray at 6 in the morning. And so you'll get a, a little reminder. And it has a link to the Zoom. If you're a part of our prayer texts, Reagan is good at sending out a reminder on our prayer text line. If you're not on our prayer texts, you can sign up for those. There's information about how to sign up for those on our website under this week. That's our digital bulletin. So if you click on this week or go to firstnaz.com slash this week, you can find that. There's also a link to the, to the 6 a.m. prayer there. So you are without excuse for, uh, for not knowing the link. And uh, so then I just wanted to, to highlight, we have, we have a cool little ministry, not a little ministry, we have a huge, great ministry uh, that happens in as a result of people in our church that we maybe we don't honor or recognize very, very often. But one of the cool things that happens because First Naz people are so amazing, Ron, I'm going to ring in just a tiny bit. I'm going to back up. Does that mess up the live stream? Okay. I'm going to back up just a tiny bit and see if that helps with my ring. Because I'm ringing and it's in my ear and it's bothering me. So... We have this amazing thing that happens. We have a number of retired ministers that are a part of our church, and one of those is Bill Carr, and Bill Carr is basically, he retired like two years ago from being a district superintendent, and then he has never showed up here except for to tell us that he wants to be a member here, and he has a house in Clarkston, and he's a part of our body, but then he, he keeps getting asked to be interim pastor at other places, and so for the last six, eight months, he has been interim pastor in Walla Walla, and we've had him on loan, and they're about to call a pastor, and Bill is hopeful then that he and Janet will be able to, to actually live in their home and, and retire and, and hang out with us here in Lewiston for a little while. We'll see. But I just think it's awesome that we do that, and if you see Bill, I know that a number of you uh, see Bill. He is in town for, for a few days every week, and so just encourage him and let him know that he and Janet are a part of us, and we love them, and we appreciate them. And then this week and last week, Bill was not able to be in Walla Walla. So you know what? We just had another one of our preachers go over. He just asked uh, David Waltner to go over, and David Waltner's just preaching away last week and this week in Walla Walla, which is amazing, right? Like, how rich are we that we, uh, we'll just loan him. We'll loan him one of our other preachers. And then next week, Bill is still on the road, and so Pastor Bill Bull will be in Walla Walla preaching, and uh, it, we will miss Bill here greatly. I always miss Bill. You can notice that I am frazzled on Sundays when Bill Bull is not here, but it's, uh, it is, again, it's just like, oh yeah, 
And we have more. We have more amazing pastors and preachers and men and women who serve the Lord uh, so faithfully that like every, every church within like the whole U.S. would be delighted to have them. And, uh, and so we, we are just, I just, I'm just bragging. This is just bragging. This is, the Lord needs to check me because I'm getting proud. Um, so that's just, that's just that. And then uh, just a personal moment uh, to my most famous, or my most faithful podcast listener. Happy birthday, Suzanne, when you listen to this. Uh, my sister is, is turning in age today. I think my sisters, my older sisters get younger than me every year. But uh, so happy birthday. Okay, those are my personal announcements, and it's children's church time. Uh, I, I'm going to be speaking from Acts chapter 2, and I have, I have a take on Acts chapter 2 this morning that I, I hope that resonates with you, and I hope that I explain my take, and I hope that you understand where, where I'm trying to go. It, I'm talking about the trouble of, of, of uh, getting what you want, the trouble with getting what you want, and so I wonder, I wonder if you've ever gotten what you want. Have you ever had your dreams come true? Have you ever had, like, the thing you landed that dream job? Um, I'm going to get in trouble because the title of my sermon is The Trouble with Getting What You Want, and my example of getting what I want is marrying my wife. <laughs> it has been no trouble. There is no trouble. This is not trouble for me. We will have no trouble. <laughs> how, how has it gone for you? It's been wonderful for me. How has it gone for you to get what you want? How has it gone? Has it been wonderful every step of the way? I hope so. I hope it's been just excellent. I hope every, when, you, when you landed that dream job, it was just everything you hoped it would be. Uh, when, when, you, when you bought that thing that you were sure you needed, I, I really hope that, boy, ever since then, your life has been different and better. I, I hope that when, when that person's attitude changed and you got what you wanted, <laughs> that it just made, it made all the difference. I hope but I'm not naive enough to, to believe that in every instance, when we get exactly what we want, is it the be-all, end-all that we think it might be, right? I, I married the girl of my dreams, and it turns out that I love being married to her, and it, but I was very immature when I married her, and, and I didn't realize how immature I was <laughs> until I was married to someone. And I had to learn, I had to grow up. And it wasn't, it wasn't like I got married to the girl of my dreams and then everything just fell into place and everything was perfect and, and my life was, was just so easy from there on, right? It's been great. It's been great. <laughs> but it's been work, Right? It, and and if, you, if you landed that dream job, it was still work. And there were days you woke up and you were like, oh, it's Monday again. 
if, if you had that, that thing that you thought was going to always be the thing or was going to change everything, was it six months before you were like, eh, now, now it's the next thing? If it was six months, I would say you were probably doing pretty good. It just seems like when we get everything we want, it, it, it doesn't always make everything in our lives come together. Okay, so with that in mind, today is the day of Pentecost, and today's the day we really do celebrate the birthday of the church. This, before the day of Pentecost, the church was just a group of people. Before the day of Pentecost, the, the book of Acts in chapter 1, it says that there were about 120 of them gathered together in the upper room waiting. And they, it, there's this weird period of time between when Jesus ascended into heaven to when the Holy Spirit came. And, and for a period of time, they're no longer the followers of, of the living Jesus, Jesus walking the earth, right? They don't have Jesus to walk around behind anymore. So they're no longer that. And they don't have the Holy Spirit. And they just, they kind of cloister. They go in, in together into the upper room and they gather together and they just, they're just a group of people. They're just people waiting. They don't, they don't have much more of an identity or a purpose other than these people who are in a room waiting in Jerusalem. They're just there. And they do some stuff. They, they, it tells us in Acts that they were the 11 disciples who were left after Judas had, had betrayed Jesus and abandoned them and, and hanged himself. And then uh, they select someone to replace Judas. And so that happens. They're but mostly they're just this group, this sort of nameless, faceless group, just kind of hanging out, waiting. And, and it's amazing to see the change that happens from this group that's just cloistered, just, just shut down. They've got the doors closed, you know? Like you, you picture them just kind of, it's a hot room because they're, they're just gathered together in this one place. And we see immediately after this story, as we read through the book of Acts, these people become the fearless evangelists. The people who stand in front of the, of the rulers who have authority to have them beaten, imprisoned, even killed, and they don't back down a bit. We see in the book of Acts leaders, people who aren't even supposed to be leaders, like people in, in roles that aren't leader roles, stating it so clearly that nobody can deny that what they're saying is the truth, and, and leading others in amazing, amazing ways. And, and so, this is, this is the story where it all changes in Acts chapter 2. This is where it changes. And so let's read this story, shall we? <laughs> We're, I'm in Acts chapter 2, and you can follow along on the screen, or you can open your own Bible or turn on your own Bible. And we'll see what happens as these, these followers of Jesus are gathered together in the upper room. I'm going to start by reading Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It goes like this. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm, 
and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At the time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, uh, Amalites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, in the province, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. Well, what they needed was me, because I'm going to explain all that it means right here, right, here, right now. I, I know what this means. Um, honestly, though, I can't, I can't say in one morning all that it means to the church for, for this experience of Pentecost to, to have happened. The, and so I'm going to focus on, on a couple of things that Pentecost means for us. And mostly, what I want to focus on is this idea that the church was really founded, it was really, it began, this is the birthday of the church. The church was founded by the miracle of Pentecost. Pentecost Day is, is Founders Day. It is, it is the day that we began as the church, the church, the global church. And so, in order to look at how Pentecost is a founding story, I want to look at another founding story in the Bible. There's another story of, being, of founding that happens in the Bible, uh, of the founding of the people of God in the Old Testament. And so I'm going to look at the book of Exodus, and the book of Exodus tells the story of God taking this group of people who, who were slaves in Egypt and creating a nation out of them, creating a people. Uh, they weren't a people, and then they were a people because of what God did in the book of Exodus. So if you'd like to follow along, I'm not going to be reading any passages from Exodus, but you can like start flipping through in Exodus. It's the second book in the, in the Bible in the Old Testament. At the end of the book of Genesis, right before, right before Exodus, we see the people, God's chosen people were a family. They were a family and the patriarch, the most important person in the family, his name was Israel. He had been born named Jacob, but God changed his name to Israel. And so his family went into Egypt. And they went into Egypt because one of Israel's sons, Joseph, had risen to power in Egypt he had become a very important person, and there was a famine. There's a famine in all of the known world, and because of Joseph, Egypt was ready for the famine, and so God used Egypt to protect the family of Israel, and the whole family of Israel showed up in, in Egypt, and they survived the famine there, and then we're kind of left to assume they just kind of, they rode on, they dined on Joseph's fame, for a number of years. 
They dined on Joseph's fame. They, they, were, they were happy to be the descendants of Israel and Joseph, and they kind of lived on that. And then the beginning of the book of Exodus, we read that a new king came over Egypt, and he did not know Joseph. He did not remember the blessing that this family had been to his people. He did not know why it was so important. This family was so important in in his country, and so he said, "Well, we have this big family, this Israel family, and there are a lot of them. And why don't we why don't we just put them to work?" And so he turned them into slaves, and he put them to work in his building projects, making bricks, and he he oppressed them. He made their lives very, very difficult. And so at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we we see this family living as slaves multiplied. They've multiplied. There's there's hundreds of them, thousands of them at this point. They've multiplied, and they're living as slaves in Egypt. And and it's not fair. And they're they're hoping that something might change. And into that, into that hope, there is born a man named Moses. And, it, and God sent this leader named Moses who would eventually liberate his people from Egypt. And Moses, by the accidents of his birth and his, his childhood, he was adopted to be a grandson of the king of Egypt. Crazy. Like, just absolutely crazy. No way that could happen except for God must have had his hand in the process. He grew up in the palace of of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, but when he turned 40, he had some trouble and he ran. And he went for 40 days and he lived in the wilderness. And while he was living in the, for 40 years, did I say days or years? I don't know. He went for 40 years and lived in the wilderness. And for 40 years, he, he found a wife, but he, he kind of lived in, in hiding. And and toward the end of the, those 40 years, he heard from God. And God told him to go back to Egypt to liberate his people. Now, I want to highlight just very quickly some parallels here that we see between this story of, of God founding a people in the nation of Israel and the New Testament story of God founding a people. Because in the New Testament, we, when we open the pages of the New Testament, we find God's people once again looking for someone to rescue them. They weren't slaves in forced labor, but God's people at that time, they were known as the Jews. And they, they lived in a nation that, that was, had its capital in Jerusalem. And, and at that time, they were, they were under the, the power of the Roman Empire. And so they had quite a bit of freedom, but they weren't completely autonomous. They had quite a bit of, of yeah, ability to do what they want, to self-govern in certain ways, but they had to pay a lot of taxes. Mostly, they had to pay a lot of taxes. I mean, you think you're taxed. They had to pay a lot of taxes. And the people in, in, uh, among the Jews at that time, they were waiting for someone to come and liberate them. And into that story, into that, into that waiting, we start to read the stories of Jesus' birth. And Jesus, uh, Jesus is born with these sort of bizarre, miraculous events surrounding his birth. 
And then he grows into be a man and, and he spends 40 days in the wilderness, hearing from God, being tested so that maybe he would break and not follow God. And he passes the test with, with flying colors. And immediately his ministry began and he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came to establish a kingdom to start a new, a new people. And so we have these parallels between 40 years in the wilderness for, for Moses and 40 days in the wilderness for Jesus. Both communing with God, both living through trial, both returning with a purpose to God's people who are looking for liberation. And there are more parallels that, that I could highlight, but that would only be interesting to me. And so I'm just going to move over those. Back to Moses and Exodus. In chapter 5, then um, Moses goes to the king of Egypt, goes to Pharaoh, and he says, look here, God wants these people out of here. And, and uh, Pharaoh is not exactly what we would call open to that suggestion. Uh, he, he kind of puts his foot down. He says, no way. And so God works all these miracles and does all these things that are really bad for Egypt. Uh, we call them plagues. The first one was turning water into blood. The Nile River ran uh, with blood, and all the water turned to blood. And then there are, there are ten of them, frogs and gnats and hail that ruined crops until darkness. And, and it seemed like all of creation was sort of coming apart, right? Darkness in the middle of the day. So strange. And, and every time Pharaoh would say, okay, I give up, you can go. And then the plague would end, and he'd said, ha, ha, just kidding, I had my fingers crossed. And the people wouldn't be allowed to go. And, and then the last plague came, which was the death of the firstborn. God sent an angel of death. And in order to protect the, his people, the family of Israel, God said, what you need to do is you need to kill a lamb, and you need to paint your door with the blood of the lamb, so that I, the angel of death knows, over, knows to not go through your house, but to pass over your house. And, and so the people of God from that day on, every year celebrated that, that miracle with a feast they called Passover. And, and because of that, Pharaoh finally, finally relented. He finally, he finally gave up. And the parallel, again, between Exodus and the New Testament story is, is right here in, in this death and sacrifice that is required for a people to be founded, right? Jesus in the New Testament is explicitly compared to the Passover lamb. His blood is like the Passover lamb, that, that we are saved from death because his blood is, is for us, is symbolic for us, and we are, we are covered by his blood and saved. And so the, the children of Israel were saved 2,000 years before by this, this miracle and this symbol of blood. And, and then Jesus is, is brought in in, in all kinds of ways compared to, the, to that miracle. And the people of Israel then, they went from, from Egypt, they went into the, to the wilderness and they went into the wilderness, and there's two things that happened in the wilderness that I specifically want to get to and, and really want to highlight as things that are, are almost exactly the way that Jesus does them, uh, or God's people are founded. And the first, 
really important parallel begins with God's people Israel receiving God's law. Moses went up onto a mountain, and he heard from God, and God told him how the people are to act because God had brought them out of Egypt. And the, the, so Moses, Moses descended with the law, which was supposed to give, the, give identity to the family of Israel. The family of Israel was supposed to live according to this law. And the Ten Commandments are part of it. And the dietary laws that we know about the Jews living by are a part of it. It was during that time that they received a, a template for worship that was a traveling tent with them called the tabernacle during their wilderness wandering. And many years later, they built a building that was the temple that Jesus entered into and, and was worshipped God in that temple. Uh, during that time, they started the practice of circumcision as part of their identity as, as the people of Israel. And so the law, the law was supposed to shape God's people into God's character. It was supposed to shape the character of God's people. And by the law, the people were supposed to understand what it means to be God's people. They were supposed to understand how to live if they really were the people that God had called. Because God had always had this plan that he would have a people who would reflect him so well in the world that everybody would look at them and say, they're different, they, their God must, must be different and, and be interested in God because of those people. I mean, from the very beginning, that's God's plan. He, he is going to save all of humanity through this family that becomes Israel. And so the law was, was designed to do that. The law that Moses gave was, was supposed to, to give people the character, was supposed to create a community that would reflect God to the world around. So Moses comes down from the mountain with the law. Jesus began his ministry book of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He then in Matthew climbs the mountain and he reinterprets God's law in the Sermon on the Mount. He takes God's law, all of these rules that Moses had given to God's people 2,000 years before, and he says, I came, I came not to get rid of any of this, not one I dot or T cross is going to go away from any of this as long as I'm in town. In fact, I came to fulfill this. And so he, he says, you've heard it said, and he says something that was in the law of, of Moses, and he says, but I say to you, he reinterprets it. He actually makes it more difficult. Let me tell you something about the law of Moses. The law of Moses, the law of Moses failed. The law of Moses failed. Uh, I mean, that's, that's not me. You, you can't, you can't uh, be mad at me for saying that because the Apostle Paul himself says that. The Apostle Paul himself says, the law of Moses failed. Uh, the Apostle Paul lived his life trying to do what the, what the law required him. And he said, it failed. Because it called on frail human people to live to a standard that they could never attain, that they could never attain, that they could never, they could never live perfectly enough to, to, to be, to have the character of God. Jesus reinterpreted the law in the Sermon on the Mount and actually 
that failed too. That was a failed project as well. Jesus reinterpreting the law. Calling people to a higher standard. Um, people, people didn't immediately hear Jesus' words and begin to live reflecting God's character to the world around them. It's, that's not what happened. People heard Jesus' words. They said, these are great words. Ah, great words, Jesus. And they continued to live the way they had always lived. Because it reminds us that rules and information, they just, they don't change us. Rules and information are, are interesting. They, sometimes they make us feel good. Sometimes they challenge us. Sometimes they even change how we think, and sometimes they can even, even make us act a little differently. But if, if human beings are ever going to reflect the character of God, it will only be because we are transformed. And so the promise of the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament is not that we would hear a law. It's that God would write his law on our hearts. The only way that human beings can reflect the character of God to the world around us is if God rewires our hearts and completely changes us and makes us the people that God intends us to be. And so, the first thing I want to talk about in Israel's wandering in the wilderness is the giving of the law. The second thing I want to talk about is the miracle of, of the crossing of the Red Sea. In Exodus 14, we read about the children of Israel walking through the Red Sea. You're familiar with the story, right? There's a couple of important details, though. A couple of important details that are helpful in this founding idea and the way that it connects with the founding story of Pentecost. The first one is this, this pillar of smoke. It's kind of mysterious and strange. It's mentioned a number of times during the Exodus. Uh, it, it, it kind of shows up in when, when the children of Israel are standing, Moses has led them so capably right to a, an impassable body of water. And there's, there's no way to get around this body of water. And then they look back and oh, Pharaoh has changed his mind again and he's chasing after them with his armies to bring his slaves back. And, and the people, people kind of freak out and God places this pillar of smoke between, between his people and the armies of Pharaoh. And uh, it protects them. And that pillar would continue to go with, with God's people. It would continue to, to guide them. It would be fire by night that would give them light and warmth, and smoke during the day that would guide them. It's this mighty, mighty pillar. And then the other, the other interesting image in the Exodus account of, of the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea is the wind that comes and dries up the sea. This wind from God. In, in the Old Testament, it's written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for wind is ruach. You can say it if you'd like. It's, uh, it, you've got to get some guttural, you know, ruach. You might need to put a mask on if you're going to do it. But uh, the ruach 
of God. This, uh, this word that's wind is also the word for spirit. The, and so it's the wind spirit of God that comes and blows a path, a dry path through the Red Sea so that God's people can pass through. When we go to the New Testament, the New Testament is written in Greek. There's a sound like wind. Pneuma is the word in Greek for wind. It's also the word for spirit. And so in the New Testament, when God forms his people on Pentecost, it's because his wind spirit, his pneuma, comes and descends on the people. And so the, the mighty roaring wind split the Red Sea and the people walked through to their safety, while the pillar of smoke and fire protected them. Meanwhile, a mighty roaring wind filled the house on the morning of Pentecost, and what looked like tongues of fire appeared, and everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit. The people who walked through the Red Sea, they burned every bridge they had. <laughs> there was no going back to Egypt after that. Because after they walked through the Red Sea, the pillar of, of smoke kind of followed them, and Pharaoh's army said, here we go, free path, let's go, let's go get them. And God caused the water to pile up on top of them. And God's arm, uh, God defeated Pharaoh's army that way. And, and God's people were safe in the wilderness from, from an attacking army from Egypt for some time then. But they, they came to a point, though, then, when they were on the far side of the, of the Red Sea, that they had to either, they had to either make it or they were all going to die in the wilderness, right? They had to, this was sink or swim territory. There was no safety net. You know, maybe before they crossed the Red Sea, they could say, just joking, Pharaoh, take us back. At this point, they, there is nowhere for them to turn. The, the ancient world was not a friendly place to thousands of wanderers. They were a threat to anybody they approached for help. They had to make it on their own, or they were never going to do anything. So they, they walked through the Red Sea under the Ruach, the wind and spirit of God. And they became a nation. They became a people. Meanwhile, the, in the book of Acts, the followers of Jesus in the upper room are waiting on God when the pneuma, the wind and the spirit, they rush in and immediately the people began to speak in new languages. People that didn't know Galilee, it's noted that they're from Galilee because people from Galilee are not known to be scholars. These are not, these are not language scholars here that are speaking these languages. These are, these are plain folk. And somehow they're speaking, I'm from Pamphylia, and I understand them. And all of the people who are there, they can hear about the good things that God had done through Jesus. And so in the book of Acts, and uh, I'm going to continue on, in the book of Acts, and there's a little, there's kind of a silly interlude about what the people thought was happening. 
And it's just kind of silly and I'm tempted to, to make light of it, but I'm just gonna pass over it. I'm going to show self-control. And I'm just gonna pass over it, but I'll read it so you don't think that I'm just picking and choosing, but I'm, we're, we're just gonna pass through and we're gonna read to verse 21, from verse 13. So here we go in Acts chapter two, verses 13 through 21. And this is what it says. But others in the crowd, so everybody was amazed, right? Everyone's amazed. Wow, what's happening? But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you assume. Uh, Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter steps forward and he does this amazing thing. I've talked a lot about Peter over the last few weeks about Peter's waffling, about Peter's inability to get it, about Peter's denying even having known Jesus. In this moment, Peter gets it. He steps up and he passes the test. He, he understands his, the Bible, right? He, he has all these people looking on saying, what is happening? These people are crazy. They're drunk in the morning. What are they doing? Peter sees their... He's, he, hears their jeers, he hears their ridicule, and he crafts the perfect answer. He, he knows his own place in history. He knows his scripture so well that he begins with the prophet Joel. He goes on to uh, quote the Psalms of King David, and he, he paints a picture so clearly of what God is doing in this moment that tons of people respond. And, and uh, you know, this, it's, maybe it's just the skill of a great public speaker, right? Maybe it's just that this guy, he studied, maybe he did learn a thing or two about public speaking following Jesus around for three years. Maybe it's that. But Peter himself acknowledges this is not human doing right here. Peter, Peter himself, who for all of his years following Jesus, did not understand who Jesus was. He picked up a sword on the night that Jesus was arrested and cut off the ear of one of the servants sent to arrest Jesus. He was sure up until the very end that Jesus was going to start a war with Rome and take over. He didn't get it. And finally, on Pentecost morning, he stands up and he says, this is what you are seeing. You are seeing the Old Testament fulfilled. And he's able to explain to that crowd of skeptics just exactly how it is that Jesus is the Messiah, even though 
He died on a Roman cross. He nails it. <laughs> and the whole world that's been watching Peter flounder throughout the Gospels, we kind of breathe a sigh of relief, right? We're like, oh my goodness, he is going to get it. And then we think, maybe there's hope for me <laughs> if even Peter can finally get it. And from Pentecost on, Jesus' people build the church. That day, 3,000 people. And then as Acts goes on, over and over again we read, more and more were added to their number. And, and these 120 that came out of the room, they're incredible. They're incredible. They passed the test over and over and over again. They, they go into the most difficult circumstances. They go in to defend themselves in front of people who have the power to kill them. And they speak plainly the truth about God. They're not interested in preserving their own skin. They're interested in spreading the message about Jesus. And they do it over and over again. They pass the test. And so today we celebrate because this is part of our story. This is, this is us. This is Brother Peter here finally getting it. And we have hope today because, because Peter finally got it on Pentecost Day. Maybe, maybe there's hope for, for even me if there's hope for Peter. And it, I love it. I love the way that the coming of the Spirit, the, the pneuma, the wind spirit of God shows up and it makes a difference that lasts a lifetime. These guys, they went on to, to their own deaths preaching the good news about Jesus. And so, what about that other, that other time that God established a people? What about that other time that God, God's breath, God's spirit wind passed over people and they were miraculously, miraculously a nation all of a sudden? In Exodus, was it, was it just the same? If in the New Testament, the, the pneuma shows up and does something great, surely from then on, the people pass through the Red Sea and they are different, Right? Well, the short answer to that is no. <laughs> no, the, the people of God in the book of Exodus, they, they didn't get it. So in Exodus 14, we get the, the book, we get the story of the people crossing the Red Sea. And then in Exodus 15, there is a song of praise. And, and because they crossed the Red Sea, so, they, they understand enough to, to praise God. And then they have this kind of experience, this strange experience. They go to an oasis in the water. It's bitter, and they're a little bit upset. And then, at the beginning of chapter 16, it's literally less than a month since they had left Egypt. At the beginning of chapter 16, they... Uh, I'll just read it for you. Their words are better than mine. In Exodus 16, 3, they say, 
If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. Uh, the contrast is pretty remarkable, right? The contrast between, uh, in Acts, the church begins to grow and it builds momentum and they're strong and amazing. And in Exodus, the people wish that they could die. <laughs> they wish they had died back in Egypt before they saw all the miracles of God. They, they wish that none of this great stuff had ever happened. Oh yeah, we were slaves back there and we, we really didn't want to be slaves anymore. But now that we're not slaves, we realize... There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. And you have to wonder, why would one movement of God's Spirit cause people who can do, like, so much, have so much confidence in God and can do just about anything, right? Why would one movement of God's Spirit do that? And one movement of God's Spirit creates these people who are just kind of whiny. They're just kind of a bunch of babies after this. You know, the, the, the church it goes through all of this oppression and so many of them are martyred and, and they're strong and they, they relish it. And the people of Israel, they whine because God provided them breakfast again today, Right? Um, I have a visual representation of this here. This is one movement of the Spirit causes this amazing strength somehow. I, re I really need help with my meme making. But, uh, and then one, one movement of the Spirit is just kind of There are probably a lot of different reasons for this, and I probably don't have all of the answers for, for why it happened this way. But I think that, uh, that it may have the different, it may, it may have to do with the difference between God doing something for a group of people and God doing something in the hearts of a group of people. The followers of Jesus, they they talked a lot about their obedience, about their willingness to follow while Jesus was still alive, right? They talked a big, a big talk when Jesus was alive. But when Jesus was arrested, they failed the test. They scattered. They went their own way. Uh, but after Jesus, after the Holy Spirit came, Jesus' followers they did it. Boys, let's not, let's not distract people anymore, okay? Okay? Thank you. The followers of Jesus, after they received the Holy Spirit, they, they passed the test. They, because it was God's work in their hearts. You know, the children of Israel they had always wanted to be free. That generation that left Egypt, they knew nothing but slavery before they left Egypt. And they thought for all of their lives, 
if only we could be a free people, then they would, uh, all of their lives would come together. Everything would be great. And they get a month out of, out of slavery, and they're already wishing they had died as slaves. But when Jesus comes and he transforms the lives of the disciples, how often do we think about that one thing we wish would change? About that, that one thing that if, if we just had, if we could just get that different job, if they would just, if I could just get that next raise, if only that person would give me the time of day, listen to my ideas, we have in mind so many, that one thing, <laughs> that one thing that's going to make everything so much better and everything's going to come together in our lives because of that one thing. And it turns out for the, for the people of Israel, that one thing was a huge thing, right? Being slaves and being free, it was a huge deal and God had to do a ton of miracles and they saw God's power over and over uh, again as it happened. And still... And still, when, it, when they finally had the desires of their heart, it didn't, it didn't change them. It didn't make a lasting impact. And so, what do we do? <laughs> I think this is a good reminder for us a good reminder for us that maybe we need to stop asking God to do things for us. Maybe what we need to ask God is to do something in us. To reshape our hearts. To rewire us. So that, so that we can become the people that he has called us to be. The, the people that he has called us to be are, are not the people with whatever that thing is that we think will, will bring all kinds of happiness, right? The people that he's called us to be are not necessarily the person with that job, not necessarily the person with that stuff, not necessarily even the person with that relationship. The people that God has called us to be is the person transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. That and only that will bring about peace and joy and hope and contentedness. Not a promotion or a raise. Not even another human relationship. Only his power at work in us. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why Pentecost is so awesome. <laughs> because of this day, we... We have the memory of, of our church being born. We have the memory of, of his spirit coming upon a group of people that was just kind of nothing, just kind of a, a shapeless group of, of folk. And, and the spirit of Christ descended and it made them the church. That's our hope for today. And so... This morning, I'm going to pray with you. And we're going to pray that it wouldn't just be a story that we remember from 2,000 years ago. And that we would maybe stop believing that there is anything other than the gift of the Spirit 
that would bring about the kind of hope and joy that would bring all of life together the way that we, we think life might come together. So why don't you stand with me? And let's spend a few moments in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you, God, that you are always, always with us. But Lord, we want a special filling of your Holy Spirit. We recognize that there is something special that you would like to do in us and through us and with us. God, we recognize that by the power of your Spirit, you can transform us. You can make us into the men and women that you've called us to be. We repent, God. We repent of the thinking that has gotten us to the place of looking for the next bit of information that maybe will transform us. We repent, God, of the thinking that has made us, made us want the next step in our career or the next trinket or the next relationship, thinking that that is what will make us into the men and women that you have called us to be. And Lord, we seek to be used only, or to, to uh, seek only you to be the men and women that you have called us to be. Oh God, we, we don't want to look anywhere apart from your spirit. And so, we ask God, and we open our hearts in all sincerity, saying we recognize that there is nothing else. There is nothing else that we need. There is nothing else that will shape us. There is nothing else that will transform us except your Holy Spirit. Oh God, come. Oh Holy Spirit, move among your people. Here we are. Here we are, our hearts are open. Remove the desires to have the things that won't make us more like Jesus. Remove the, remove the silly thoughts we have when we think about what else it might be. And Lord, fill us with a desire for only your spirit. Help us to want the right thing and to seek the right thing, Lord. We, we love you, Lord. And we ask God to continue your movement among us. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. May you go in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. You are dismissed.